0: Oh, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of our wonderful Holy Spirit be with all of you, my dear friends. You know, one of the peculiarities about having a festival dedicated to the honor and glory of God the Holy Spirit, Christ the Savior and the Father, and calling it Trinity Sunday is you can dig high or low in Scripture and never find the word Trinity. All right. Some of you uh, general Zers are now whipping your phones out, you're going to fact check me on that. Go ahead, have at it. Uh, You let me know after the service when you find the chapter and verse but I think you're going to be looking for a long, long time. It isn't in the Bible. Does that freak you out that we're making such a big deal? A name of God for crying out loud. It's not even in Scripture. Doesn't that go against our Lutheran grain? We're always like all about the Word. Well, deep breaths everybody, relax. It's just shorthand. It's just a convenience. And the main thing is not the word, but it's the concepts behind it, isn't it? Now that you think of it, we've got a lot of words that are in a very frequent use here in the the church world. Lent, for instance. I wouldn't miss it. I look forward to Lent every year. Not that I enjoy watching stories of somebody else's pain, but it helps me appreciate over and over How much Jesus must have loved a dog like me when I see what he went through to win me back. You won't find the word Lent in the Bible. It's an old English word, actually, invented long after Scripture ceased to be recorded. Same with Easter. You won't find the word Easter in the Bible. Does that freak you out? That's a, a word the Christians made up. It actually is from an old English word, Eostre, which is the direction you face to see the rising sun, because Easter is always a morning thing. I don't think we've ever had a church service on Easter evening, and I doubt if we ever will, because just Easter is just a a morning thing, isn't it? Just got to do it in the morning. But that word is not in Scripture, but that's okay. You also will not find the word Holy Communion in Scripture, and we love that term. It's such a descriptive, powerful word of bringing things together. You won't find the term sacrament in the Bible. It's a made-up word to describe something as shorthand that the Bible uses more words to describe. Trinity is what's called a portmanteau. It's a smooshing together of two words in order effectively to form shorthand for describing a complicated thing. It's also, once again, it's time, we do this now almost every Sunday, right? Embrace the paradox. How can you have three and one at the same time? Either by definition, it's got to be predominantly the three or the predominantly the one. But in this case, no. Scripture says in Deuteronomy that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so we hold on to the one with a death grip. But Scripture also commands us to do our baptizing in the name of the three. And so we do them both and just let Scripture take over and put our reason on the shelf and just say, you sit over here, Sonny. You won't be needed on this question. It isn't rational. God says, I know. I don't have to fit your logical categories and don't try to do that to me. The early Christians did, unfortunately, they tried to reason out the puzzle of the Trinity and did poorly at it, mangled it, especially brutal on the second person of the Trinity. The fact that Christ is fully God and fully human, once again, don't try to jam that into your logical categories. It's a paradox. Embrace the paradox. Hug the opposites. Hug them both tight, true God. My Savior. His blood was powerful enough and universal enough to forgive all of my sins and the sins of the world. And yet, He's human too. He had blood to shed for me. God does not have blood to shed, a person like me does. And your salvation is riding on that crazy concept of God and man simultaneously. Don't argue about it, just embrace it. But in the early centuries, the Christians had a terrible time with that. And the Council of Nicaea actually was a tremendous gift of God to bring together the craziness, huddle together bishops and church leaders from all over the eastern Mediterranean. They met in Nicaea in 325 and remarkably for the hundreds of people who were there came to unanimity and only five people voted against the eventual outcome, which we now know as the core verses of the Nicene Creed. So it's a portmanteau. Tri, the Latin word for three. You know how many legs are on the stand that you set a camera on, right? A tripod has three legs and a tricycle has got three wheels. So trinity, tri, refers to the three and you all know the word unity. Unum is the Latin word for one and so you smoosh together the three and the one and you have triune, or Trinity. Okay, the word isn't in the Bible, but it's a convenient Christian shorthand to express something really important. In the late 100s, this became enough of an issue. The first time the word seems to have popped up is a scholar and a church father uh, and writer and a doctrinal teacher by the name of Theophilus of Antioch. He is the first person that is known to have actually written down the word Trinity. And right after that, the great historian and doctrinal writer, Tertullian, began to use it a lot. And that term prevailed. And all of the other weird variations that these inquiring philosophical Greek minds came up with, somehow diminishing Christ, using logic again. If you're the son, you gotta be lesser. Uh, Sons always are younger than their fathers, right? Isn't that a rule? If you try to apply that rule to Christ, you're sunk. Because he is eternally the Son. And that makes no logical sense. What did I just tell you to do? Put your reason on the shelf. Let it go. And just embrace it. God tells you that not for you to understand it. He tells it to you just to believe it and embrace it and welcome it. The Son is as old as the Father. There is the thing called the eternal generation of the Son. And they together both exude the Holy Spirit. In a few minutes, we're going to say when we, that we believe in the Spirit of God who came forth from the Father and the Son. How does that make any logical sense? It doesn't. Just enjoy it and embrace it. I want to read with you today a chunk of Scripture that doesn't so much dwell on the mysteries of the persons because we'll never get to the bottom of that. Some of the work they share together, they do together. When Scripture just says the word God, we'll make the assumption that all three personalities are engaged in this one activity. Sometimes they have separate jobs that only they do. Only the Spirit came on Pentecost and filled the hearts of people. That wasn't Christ. Christ, in fact, intentionally left in order for the Spirit to do his thing. From Jesus' point of view, The early Christians had more with his leaving and the Spirit coming than if he'd have hung around and held off the Spirit. They needed that gusher of the Spirit to make the jump from Old Covenant to New Covenant. That's harder than it looked. Easier for you, harder for them. Also it was only Christ who was crucified. The Father wasn't on the cross and the Holy Spirit wasn't on the cross. So some of their working is different. Some of it is together. Scripture will tell you when you need to know the difference. Here is a chunk of a letter that St. Paul wrote to Titus that describes how our very salvation is a Trinitarian work. That you owe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally gratitude for the fact that you're on the fast track to heaven. You are on your way to the heavenly mansions that Christ is preparing for you right now. And he's got the hotel staff checking the beds for you right now to make sure everything is perfect when he calls you in. This is from St. Paul's letter to Titus. And I doubt if you know too much about Titus because there's not too much to know about Titus just from the Bible. Can't wait to meet the brother. Pretty cool guy. Uh, You don't know much about him because he's not in the book of Acts. And even if you've read the Journeys of Paul from the book of Acts, You'll come out of it not knowing a doggone thing about Titus. But you will learn about him from Paul's letters. Paul raved about this guy. He was one of, the, one of his young trainees, you know, like Timothy and Silas and Apollos. He was one of the next-gen leaders that Paul would trust and use as a courier. And Paul had nothing but the greatest praise for him and trust for him. He trusted Titus, for instance, to organize and collect the offering that was being gathered for the starving saints in Jerusalem. Uh, This offering was to take place in Corinth. And Paul, in his letters to the Corinthians, mentions him at least eight times because he's so proud of him. Titus also served in Dalmatia. Now, you know about Dalmatia because you know about the dogs with the spots on them. But there actually is a place on earth called Dalmatia. And I wouldn't be surprised if you had trouble locating it. It's the old name for Croatia. Titus was an evangelist in Dalmatia. Today we'd say Croatia. And maybe his most famous place of service is where he is now. And he's having a tough time. And Paul wrote him three intense little chapters of guidance. That's why this is one of what are called the pastoral letters. But please do not assume that you can skip these, that these are not intended for you. God wants you to peek in on his instructions to Titus and also Timothy of how to be a good pastor. So these pastoral epistles are for you too. Here's what he said. Most of Titus' is instructions for Christian living, uh, we call this sanctification, living as a Christian. He doesn't talk much about how to become a Christian, but he did here. He burst into this paragraph and frankly, I think this is one of the most easy to understand, concise, brilliant explanations of what is called justification. How foolish sinners are transformed into faithful, humble, penitent believers, which is what I expect every one of you and I are. This is from Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Have you found the spot? Look it up in your Bible. I want you to know where this is. And it starts with some bad news, and you're in it. This is probably one of the most intense law-gospel combinations you are ever going to find in Scripture laid out in some embarrassingly frank language. Have you got the spot? Titus 3, verse 3, at one time, Paul writes to his young friend Titus, even we, we too, were foolish, and here come four painful adjectives, and he's including himself. This is how human beings are born. And these are the behaviors that show that there's sin in their brains. First, fools! Fools value trash. And they despise treasures. Their value system is completely screwed up. They chase after things that don't matter and they ignore things of priceless value. Paul said, that's us chasing trash Ignoring treasure. Second, disobedient. Obedience is a characteristic of a believer. Disobedience is a characteristic of a heathen, of a pagan, of someone with contempt for God. Every time you disobey a commandment you know is something God said, every time you consciously do something evil, you are giving God the finger and going in his face and kicking him It's horrible, it's an example of Satan at work. Or if people disobey and they don't even know they're disobeying, they didn't even bother to learn what the will of their creator is. In fact, ever since the time of Charles Darwin, Darwin gave intellectual cover to the idea that you are accountable to nobody. Since nobody created you, since the biblical stories of creation are are myths and fantasy, you are accountable to no one but yourself. Well, you can see the world we live in as a result of that. If you're just another species of animal, why should we be surprised when people act like animals? If you have not been given God's high respect for the sanctity of human life, why should we be surprised when people assault one another? If you look at what happened in Buffalo a couple of weeks ago, you will see true evil, Satan on two legs walking into a grocery store, a white supremacist who was going to see how many people of color he could take out that day. That isn't someone who's mentally ill. That is pure evil. That's what it looks like. And that sickness, unfortunately, lurks in you too. We just see it in an extreme form there. When somebody walks into a grade school, barricades himself into a room with small children and starts shooting them, that isn't mental illness. That is evil. That is Satan outing himself, despising other people, loathing and hating. That is what's being described here. Deceived is another painful descriptor of the human race. Satan tricked us into chasing after evil and thinking it was good and blowing off good as though it were undesirable. And thinking we were being freed, instead we became enslaved. Satan deceived Eve by encouraging her to think that she would get status, power, and freedom by striking out on her own. That God was enslaving her. In fact, instead of getting rid of chains, She put chains on, and her stupid husband, Adam, was even more guilty because he watched her do it, knew better, didn't call her back from doing it, didn't jump in and intervene, didn't do what any decent husband would have done and jumped in to take the blow himself or to say, hey, this isn't right. He watched her do it and then imitated her. He, He was weak. He folded like a tent like a camping tent in high winds, he just folded up and thus rightly deserves the blame in the New Testament. By all kinds of passions and pleasures, our appetites and our emotions sometimes take total control over our brains and rational thought. We lived in malice and envy. Malice is enjoying other people's sufferings. Admit it, sometimes you enjoy watching people slip on a banana peel. Envy, instead of clapping and cheering for other people who are doing well, we resent them and hate them. And that's in all of us, being hated and hating one another. Haters shoot children in grade schools. Haters shoot people not like them. This is the world we live in. If you wonder why it's so broken, here it is. People entranced with Satan's lies do not become free. They become slaves. And do not become forces for good. They become destroyers. As Satan, ultimately, the liar that he is, is a destroyer, not a builder. And he hates you most of all. He loathes and despises you and enjoys every bit of pain you have in your life and is goading you to cause more to somebody else, which will make him smile too. What a mess. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared." And by the way, normally you think a reference to our Savior, that must mean Jesus. Actually not. This is a reference to the Father because he's going to refer to the Spirit and to Christ as something other, the other members of the Trinity. So this is an allusion to the Father. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Here is where it comes from. The decision of the Father to love you and me anyway is the most amazing mystery and most stupendous story in the history of all human literature. It doesn't get any better than this. Here's why you're on your way to heaven. He went first because you were paralyzed and couldn't go first. He came after you because you couldn't get up to him. There's not a ladder tall enough in the world for you to climb up to heaven, climb out of the pit you're in. But instead, he came to you and to me. This is called grace. He came with kindness and love because God loved foolish sinners anyway. He chose to love us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Today on Trinity Sunday, thank the Father for mercy. And I know you want to justify yourself in some ways. I know you want to excuse yourself. I know you want to make yourself bigger than you are. I know you want to strut and brag a little bit. Put all that away today and just say thank you, Father, for having mercy on a dope, on a fool like me. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of the Lord baptized you, it wasn't a pastor doing it. The skill or words of the pastor or father or mother or whoever did the baptizing, that's not the power source. The Spirit is the power source through the Word. It is the words of God spoken that make baptism what it is. Not just an interesting little ceremony by which someone is rededicating him or herself to the Lord. Baptism is all God's doing. You just lay there and let it happen. It is God's gift and God's working. The Spirit of the Lord is implanted in this person. The Word of God touching that body with the water implants the Spirit, gives the forgiveness of sins. Paul wrote in Romans crucifies you with Christ, buries you with Christ, raises you again with Christ in order that you might live a new life. It is all God's doing. Today, thank the Holy Spirit for penetrating your hard crust of sin and somehow leading you to faith and now living in you, sometimes having to live in an inner space inside your brain with a lot of mess and garbage, but he loves you enough to struggle and work with you, to bring you to faith and now to guide you in how to live that way, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. The pouring of the blood of Christ is like a fountain filled with blood. we got a Lenten Him like that. The blood of Jesus Christ is unlimited because it is the blood of a man and the blood of God and never will run out in its power to wash you and me clean. Because we sin every day, we need it, only the blood of God could do that. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood generously has been poured out so that having been justified, justified means that God treats you just as if you had never sinned, by his grace, Grace is God loving the unlovable, loving people who had nothing coming to brag about. He, it's a 100% gift that we might become heirs. Heirs inherit something because somebody else died. That's why you're on your way to heaven, because somebody else died in your place, having the hope of eternal life. This is biblical hope. I hope the Brewers win the National League pennant, Uh, It's looking a little sketchy right now, isn't it? Uh, They've got to not do these seven-game losing streaks. It's brutal. I hope they win, but but I might be totally wrong. They might end up 15 games out of it. But this is certainty. When the Bible talks about the hope of eternal life, it means the certainty. The only thing hopish is you can't see right now, but faith is the certainty of things that we cannot see. Having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Today, I invite you not to try to unscrew the inscrutable and figure out the Trinity with your brain. Don't bother. Just embrace all the paradoxes and all the strangitude of it and just love it. Just love them back. Love your Father for choosing you and coming after you to help you feel valuable and important. I'm somebody. He wants me to come and live in the big house with him. That is so amazing. And I couldn't lift myself up to him, so he stooped down to me. Thank you, Father. Thank Jesus for loving you to death, his death, and rising again so that you can rise again. And thank the Spirit for converting you, living within you, indwelling you, gifting you, giving you something to do other than kill time. We're not just sitting here in like a doctor's office, killing time, waiting for our appointment, reading stale, out-of-date magazines of stuff you don't care about. you got important work to do because surrounding you in this world is the majority of the human beings in the world we live in. Do not know what I just told you. And it's too big a job for just me. I need some helpers. you got to help. Share good news of the Trinity. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, merciful and mighty, blessed Trinity. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.